Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I, was, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eyes upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good afternoon, New Hope. Today we will look once more at the Psalms before uh, Pastor Rob begins our new sermon series in the book of James. Our message today comes from Psalm 32, as Tito just read for us in its entirety. And the title for today's message is When God Covers Sin. Uh, would you bow your heads with me as we pray for today's word? Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we are thankful for psalms such as these, Lord, that declare your forgiveness that you give to those who confess. Lord, I ask that you would make us needy this afternoon, that we would desire to see the truths and the doctrine of confession here within this text. Lord, would you be with me and may the Holy Spirit enable us to confess boldly to you that we may find restoration, peace, and comfort. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Guys, I have a relatively uh, straightforward outline for today, and that is explanation, observations, and applications. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, first is the explanation of our text for today. Psalm 32 is one of seven penitential psalms, or songs of penance. Uh, these are psalms that reflected the Psalter's sorrow and regret for sins against the Holy God. Uh, perhaps the most memorable of such psalms, and quoted much, is Psalm 51, where David cries out to God for the sins involving Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. And while that is actually one of my favorite psalms, um, I found studying and meditating on Psalm 32 may be a little bit more impactful for me. Maybe it's a little bit fresher but I hope for you it will do the same. When asked the great reformer Martin Luther, when asked, what is your favorite psalm, he listed Psalm 32 as one of his favorites. It is said of the great theologian Augustine that this psalm was inscribed on the wall near his deathbed so that he might meditate and be comforted by it. And at first glance, you may already recognize why so many love this psalm. This psalm profoundly speaks of forgiveness and the joy that comes with it when we repent and confess to the, God, uh, to the Lord. My hope for us this afternoon is that we too would, would see and savor these truths and this doctrine of confession that David articulates for us here and that we would be ready then to confess more boldly before God to receive His gift of forgiveness that is foundational to true, lasting joy. The psalm begins by stating that this is a mascal of David. You would think that if you could Google it, the answer would be there, but let me save you the time. It doesn't really give a good answer. So... After spending some time studying this word, it is difficult to understand its original meaning as the 
Hebrews would have used it. But I think based on the teaching and the instructive nature of this psalm, I believe the word masculine intends to prime the reader or the singer to convey to them that this is a psalm about a certain life lesson that should be learned, applied, and drawn out of the psalm. Uh, I think in particular, uh, we may be tempted to dismiss some of the teaching here about confession and our need to confess sin if we were to merely interpret this psalm in, uh, psalm in light of David's adultery and murder. I think David purposefully left his sin ambiguous in the psalm so that the instruction would be applied regardless of circumstance or category of sin. I believe the word maskal teaches us here that this is universal instruction for all of us, whether that be sins of great or small magnitude, that the teaching is nonetheless the same. This is less about focusing strictly on what David did as much as it is a lesson given to David by the Spirit of God that applies to all of us regardless of situation. So all of that to say, this psalm provides quite a bit of helpful instruction as we think about confession and personal sin and the type of help that God gives and of course ultimately the pardon only He can bestow. Uh, This psalm is structured by first opening in a glorious pronouncement of the blessed man who finds his transgressions forgiven and his sins covered. Verses 1 and 2. The goal of this psalm is that we would be drawn to want to experience that blessedness. David continues in verses 3 through 7 by describing his experience that led to that blessed state with the sin or the sins that at first kept him from that joy, and then his acknowledgement of sin that brought forgiveness and repentance. Uh, You can see the change of disposition that David has in the psalm once he confesses. There is relief. There is the presence of the Lord and the peace of the Lord that sparks his praises and his joy. And then in verses 8-11, through the speaking shifts to the prophetic words of God Himself. While the first half of the psalm is the conclusions and the narrative of David and his experience, the second half represents the promise and the warning of God through David. So as a whole, this psalm paints a clear picture of our need to confess, repent, and to turn away from the ignorance of our sin that hinders joy and peace with God and the ongoing consequences if we refuse to come. Blessed is the man, or perhaps a better translation would be, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. We know they are completely and fully covered by the blood of Jesus Christ as we sang through worship this afternoon. So brothers and sisters, this is the thrust of our psalm for today that we can know true peace and comfort that comes when we bring our guilt, shame, and sins to the Lord. That to be made right with Him is to be made right in our souls. He receives our confession and He makes atonement for us so that sorrow can be replaced with joy, discouragement with encouragement, and anxiety with peace. This is what I hope comes to be brought to bear in our message today. But before we look at our observations of this text, there are two things I want to say at the onset. First, this psalm offers no comfort to those who cling to self and self-preservation. One may confess boldly to priests, Therapists, uh, they may draw comfort from their works or enjoy the praises of men, but the truth of God's Word is, unless you have confessed to God and you have brought your guilt to Him and Him alone, you have no chance of knowing this blessed state the psalmist speaks of. This psalm is not formulaic, where if you merely follow the steps, 
apply the practices of some form of confession, you can expect to have this blessed state. Uh, We cannot expect or charge God with wrong when we perform confession as mere duty or confess only to oneself or to someone who is able to listen. No, the peace, the forgiveness, the absolution, the blessedness is strictly and only for those who have confessed their sin to God. It is for those who have called upon the name of Christ and have been made right with God through His cross. I say this because there will be those, even now, as I am speaking, whom the evil one is still blinding and has deceived them into a lull of false sense of relief and pacifism when it comes to their sin. Some will claim to have peace with God, but not have made peace by His Son. That kind of peace is born of self and has no economy with God. I say this not to be inflammatory, but with the sincere desire that you would be made right with God and that you would truly know this blessedness. That you would be saved from your sin and find joy in God alone, not circumstances or psychology. I want to be clear and upfront so that you would not be hardened further and merely think you heard a good homily to help you with a guilty conscience. You cannot be sure you are right with God unless you have been born again by His Spirit. And this is only when we cast all our burdens and our sin at the feet of Jesus who is able and just to forgive us. We must trust and believe in the Gospel. If that is someone here today, I earnestly would ask you that you would listen all the more carefully to see if you are indeed forgiven and found in Jesus Christ. But in the same breath that I say that, I tell you that if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, this psalm is joy-producing and it is for your daily good. God is set on making you know His peace and this psalm is delivered to you with the intention to ease your burden and your conscience when you relinquish all forms of self-righteousness and stand before God as as one approved by Him and not by self. The comfort for the Christian today is that if you can confess and come to God, you will know His true rest, His satisfying approval, and real deliverance. This is what the Lord promises in verses 7 and 8. He will be your hiding place. He will preserve you. He will be with you so that He can instruct, teach, and counsel you with His eye upon you. This psalm, I hope, may be a call to some burdened Christian in this room who feel themselves wasting away simply because they have forgotten the freedom that comes when confessing their iniquities to the Lord because He always meets His child with grace. And so I hope today for many of you, you will be met with the reality behind the words of David in Psalm 51, verse 12, that God would restore to you the joy of His salvation. So that is the explanation. Let us turn to some observations. What does our text today have to say about the nature of sin and confession and their effects? Observation number one, unconfessed sin affects our temperament. Unconfessed sin affects our temperament, and it does so in two ways. The first way is the natural effect of unconfessed sin, which we see in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. Uh, David here is speaking of some kind of inner turmoil of his guilty conscience. Uh, It has affected his whole mood. It has affected his whole person. Here is a man who has committed some sin, but he's unable to speak about it or open up to anyone. Uh, This mighty king who probably knew more richness and pleasures than we could ever imagine in this life, who has more prestige and power 
yet he is now being crushed inwardly because of some besetting sin. If anyone has ever taken a college-level intro course to Psych 101, uh, we have a technical term for this. It's called cognitive dissonance. And if I have misused cognitive dissonance, maybe Ellen can tell me that I've used it wrong, and that's why I got a low, poor grade in, in, in psych in college. But it's called cognitive dissonance, and it's, it's this uncomfortable uh, experience, it's stress-induced experience when our behavior does not match our cognition or our values. I think the most classic example of this that's used in the classroom is the person who is a smoker. Uh, They know smoking causes cancer. They know it is harmful to their body, but they find themselves unable by their behavior to stop smoking. Uh, I think it's funny that our caricature for some smokers in, in cartoons and in movies, right, is normally this person who is battling within themselves. They're usually very moody. Um, they're, they're kind of, dis- they're portrayed disheveled. They're stressed. And that's not because that they're smokers, but I think what it's trying to communicate is that this person is at, odd with, is at odds with themselves in more ways than one. Uh, we could call what David is feeling a cognitive dissonance, or we could simply call it what we normally do, which is just he has a guilty conscience against a holy God. Despite the fact that David may have been able to maybe get away from this sin, suppress it, keep it silent by his prestige and power, he says he kept silent and yet his bones, his inward being is wasting away. Uh, It's as if the sin is, is poisoning himself from the inside. It's as if it is a cancer. And his description of it is the groaning. It's as if he's trying to, to mutter and to, to get it out of his body, but he is suppressing it down. He needs to keep silence about it. It takes a lot of work to suppress the truth of wrongdoings, does it not? To continue to keep silent about something that we know we should confess. We all know the experience. We've committed some kind of travesty against somebody. And the last thing that you want to do is to approach that person to confront them and verbalize what it is you have done wrong. And so you're torn between these, these two things. Do you speak to get this burden off of your chest? Right? We, we often describe, I need to just get this off of my chest. Like it's, it's just boiling out of me. I just need to tell you because it's painful to keep in. Or, depending on how we think that the person might receive our confession, depending how serious we perceive the sin to be, we think, I'd rather endure that pain. I'll keep silent. Perhaps the problem will just go away in its own time. You can keep silent about it. No one has to know. That person doesn't have to know. In fact, we even tell ourselves, if we told that person about what we did, we would be hurting them. How does that possibly help? It's selfish for me to confess my sin to someone like that. It does no good. I'm not going to say anything. But you know. And God knows. And it slowly eats away at you. And it begins to change your temperament around people. It can transform a person over time if it elapses from days to weeks to months to years to decades the mental stress of having to hold this sin in, your conscience pricking away at you, the Holy Spirit coming to inform you, and you, you grow in more distress. This mental energy has to be continued to be poured out to suppress the negative feelings that this sin brings up, and it makes you tired. It makes you irritable. And then you want to isolate yourself. You want to get away from anyone or anything that would remind you of that thing that you cannot speak about. This is our mind trying to reconcile this tension alongside all of our ideals and values. And now they're all conflicting. Things begin to compile and they damage you and they damage the relationships around you. Is that not the goal of sin? The goal of the enemy is to erode at people and destroy them from the inside out any way that he can. 
Yet all of this seems better in the moment in comparison than to being exposed and verbalizing what it is we have done. Confessing the weakness of our sin or the horror of it. Notice that sin loves to hide. It loves to lie to us about how dangerous it is. It is naturally deceitful. David alludes to this at the end of verse 2. He first says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does that imply? It implies that when we've come to the Lord and confessed to Him and we've become honest with ourselves, the lies of self-deception and sin are removed. There is no deception. But sin wants to lie to you by saying what you did, the things that you are hiding. If you told anyone about those things, there's no forgiveness for you. Or if you're a repeating offender, it then begins to accuse you. Look at you. You're still struggling with this? You're still struggling with this sin? No one's going to think you're sincere if you confess. What's the point of confessing again? You're only going to fall. Wait. Be silent. Why don't you work it out until you're a little bit better? Why don't you get some good works underneath you? Why don't you build a foundation for you to stand on so that when you do confess, then you can show somebody that you've made some progress? So we stay silent, but we fall again because no one has come to our aid. Because we are weaker than we were before, and then that cycle goes on and on and on. That is the deception of sin. It changes and it isolates us. Sin does not want you to be free of it. It wants to imprison. It wants to control. It desires is to destroy you. And so we groan and we waste away inwardly by keeping silent about it. That is the natural effect of keeping our sin silent. But there is also a supernatural effect on our temperament that is brought upon by God. Unconfessed sin also arouses the loving and disciplinary hand of God to awaken us from our stupor. When one of His children is straying, while unconfessed is having its effect in us, God is always working. But the way in which God comes to our aid is probably not as intuitive as we may think or we may want. Look at verse 4. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. So right after he confesses about this inward groaning, he says that, Lord, your hand is on me. And he says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of a summer's day. I think most of us know what it means when it's hot. I don't know if you've ever gone to Texas or Arizona. It's hot over there. And on a scorching summer hot day, you don't want to do anything unless it involves a beach or a pool. Because the sun naturally exhausts us. And of course the reason is the body is responding to the heat of the sun and now it's kick, uh, starting an internal process to cool your body down. And so it's using up required energy to do that and our body is working harder to stay relaxed and cool and that is causing us to fatigue faster. It's sapping us of our strength and our energy. And so initially, when God uses this, when David uses this as an analogy, it might look like, like God is just beating us down as if he's adding insult to injury here, sapping us of our strength to go on. But David realizes that we need to be depleted of human strength before we can begin crying out to God for his God has a good purpose in sapping David of his energy, of his strength. Notice in verse 4, my strength was dried up. Emphasis on the my. For the Christian, God has become our Heavenly Father. And like all good parents, when your child is, is out of line and is moving toward danger, you don't abandon the child in their time of need. You make your presence known. You 
press in. And most often the way that you do that is through disciplinary action. Friends, there is nothing casual about the adoption that God has purchased for you in His Son, Jesus Christ, to be adopted into the family of God. You're in. And God is going to transform you into the image of His Christ one way or another. You will be holy as He is holy. We see this as the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament explains about God's loving discipline. Hebrews 12, 6-11. And I will quote it at length. We should have a slide. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I want to pause there for a second before we read on. The presence of God's discipline in your life is not God trying to warn you of his displeasure with you, or that you are at risk of being disowned and kicked out of the family, the presence of discipline is the sign of God's love and your legitimacy as a son or daughter of Him. If you are not feeling conviction, if you are not being disciplined, if you are not being chastised from God for your sin, that is a frightening situation to find yourself in because that might mean you're not a child of God. You may be a son of perdition. Discipline from God is good. It is a glorious thing in whatever form that it takes for you. And we'll see why in just a second. Picking up in verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Discipline is for your good and to share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline, notice the encapsulating word all, seems painful rather than pleasant but, gotta love that word, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that, friends, is what David is experiencing when he says that the Lord's hand is heavy upon him. It is a loving father disciplining his beloved son. And so a brief application while we're thinking about this, and that is for parents. And that is, don't be afraid to discipline your children. I find myself often self-conscious in public because I think cultural ideas have kind of seeped into my own thinking about what the use of spanking, verbal discipline, or restricting certain things with my kids. Because we're told in a variety of ways that any type of distress a child may feel is always negative. Uh, that all forms of discipline that make our kids uncomfortable or unhappy must be bad and they must be avoided. But that is a lie. Discipline is good and it is uncomfortable. For as long as kids are under our roofs, we have been invested with this God-given authority to set boundaries enforce good habits, and to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And discipline is the main tool that God gives to us so that we can accomplish this. And so your, your child may lash out and squirm under that discipline. They may shout and hurl accusations. But you are the parent. You have been instructed by the Lord. And you are doing what you believe is best for them. And so my encouragement to all the parents, stick to your guns. You may not see the immediate fruit of your decision to discipline your child according to the values God has given you. But as verse 11 says, later, 
We don't know when that later is, but later it yields the peaceful fruit. Let's entrust that discipline of our kids to the Lord and what His Word says. God affirms that it is good for them regardless of what they say to you or what the world says to you. We care much more about what God says is best for them. And I hope that is an encouragement to some parents here today. God's discipline should be informative for our own approach toward disciplining. All discipline is uncomfortable. But the greater reality of Psalm 32 here for us personally is that there is no doubt to the effect or the means of discipline God uses with His children. It is always for our good. It is always for the goal of holiness. And it will yield peaceful fruit. This psalm informs us that it is normal and necessary that the loving hand of God is heavy on the person that He is working on, who He is calling back to Himself. It is ultimately to bring us to repentance. It is the kindness of God. It is not condemnation from Him that He depletes us of all notion of human strength that thinks that it can overcome the burden and the guilt of sin by itself. That is what we are seeing here in verse 3 and 4. So what are some examples of these unconfessed sins? Are we, are we talking every dot and tittle? Uh, or are we to go through this really serious experience each and every time? David may be recalling the experience that he has around the situations um, of sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. But we can't say for sure. What we should not conclude though regardless, is that this psalm then only applies to some kind of high-handed, heavy sins and that that's when we're supposed to open up and confess. All sin is an offense to a holy God. But it is interesting the way that the word, uh, that, sorry, that the Lord works in our sanctification and in different seasons of our life. Just drawing from my own personal experience, there were things that I was struggling as a teen, and as a young 20-year-old that are not on my radar now, but because now I am married, I have a job, and because I have kids, all of a sudden all these things that were always there have now been kind of brought to the forefront. There are weaknesses in my life that the Lord had to deal with at certain periods of my life, and what He did is He convicted me at the time necessary to deal with that sin. So when I beg the question, what are some examples of unconfessed sins that may be plaguing your life that you need to confess to God, I don't want to box you in. Because I am not sure what God is doing in the midst of your life right now. But I do know this, it's that God's word will convict you. I know that even as I have been speaking already, the sin that most likely that you want to keep quiet about has been flashing across your mind. And you're thinking to yourself, no, that, that, that is not the sin that he is talking about. You know, we're entering a time in our church right now where we're examining crazy, busy lives. Perhaps this is the area that you are struggling in. And that the Lord is going to work in through this series if you have joined one of our groups. And he's calling you to shed or remove and to reprioritize areas in your life so that anxiety and worry and the sin that comes along at times with busyness would be that you'd be freed from that, that you would have victory. Maybe it is something simple, like something that you said that was, that was just hurtful to somebody in passing. A family member, a friend, a co-worker. And you know that you have to go to that person who's just been bothering you. You need to confess that you did something wrong and seek their forgiveness. The Lord has been convicting you. Maybe it's about the content that you watch or that you listen to. You know that it's not wholesome. You know that's not what you would listen to when other Christians would be around. Maybe it's your language. You know that it's not honoring to God. It's in jest or in banter. You are lewd, vulgar, critical, or unkind. Or maybe there is, or maybe there is something that is heavy. It is shocking and it is egregious. Maybe that is something you've been hiding from your spouse 
your parents, or loved ones. Maybe it's too much time spent with that coworker of the opposite sex. Maybe it's an addiction to substances or the abuse of drugs. Perhaps it is addiction to pornography. And the only reason why I mention that in our setting is because there are so many countless men and women who are struggling with these kinds of sins, but they feel as if they have nowhere to turn. That they would not be met with the grace of God if they were to confess and repent of that sin. Maybe it's a relationship that you know is not honoring to the Lord. Maybe you are stealing or cheating your company or a customer. Maybe you're fudging the books. Maybe you're cheating on your taxes. Whatever it is, you know what it is, and God knows what it is. And you are continually haunted by it. It has changed you over time, and you act differently because of its presence in your life. And friends, if you are God's, if you are His child, adopted in, abundantly loved, this need to confess, this wasting away, this heaviness of the Lord's hand will not go away. It will not abate. Because in verses 3 and 4, it says, that groaning was all day long. That heaviness of the Lord's hand for day and night His hand was heavy upon me. These experiences, the temperaments that we have, are going to be persistent. They are going to be ongoing, and they will not disappear. And so I realize that that can sound overwhelming. Not only are we struggling with the natural consequences of our sin, but now we also have the Lord pressing upon us. But here is the good news. As Tito kind of mentioned earlier, there's this refrain that happens within the psalm, Salah. I'm not going to go into the nuance of it, but Tito hit the nail on the head. Salah is like a pause. So when you see it, it means stop and meditate on what you just read. Salah. We feel this weight from verses 3 and 4. But observation two is this. Confessing sin triggers restoration and healing. All that wasting away, groaning, energy being sapped, the heaviness that's on David, and we get to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. You forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. That is good news, new hope. That is tear-drawing. That is joy-inducing news. That the God that I have offended, Lord, you alone have I sinned against and have done what is evil in your sight, but you forgive. I confess my sin and you forgave me. God, that's like almost too easy. It's like, it's like a passing thing that happens within the psalm. But of course, for anyone who has actually confessed their sin and has done it, they know, you know that it's the hardest thing to do. But it's simple enough to understand that a child can understand it. I confess my sin to you, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Is there any line in Scripture more refreshing and relieving and freeing to hear than that your sins are forgiven. Does that do something for someone here today? When Jesus says to the paralyzed man in Luke 5.20, the faith of his friends have ripped open the roof of this house, they have lowered him down, and Jesus sees their face, he looks at the man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. What about the sinful woman who learns Jesus is staying at Simon the Pharisee's house. She comes with tears in her eyes, washes Jesus' feet with them, with her hair, and then anoints his feet with oil. And Simon says, if this prophet knew who this woman was, he would not let her touch him. Does he not know what sort of woman she is? She's a woman of the city. She's a prostitute. She is a sinner of the worst kind. And do you know what Jesus says? 
I hope you'll look at it in Luke chapter 7, verse 40. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon says, what is it, teacher? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. They are forgiven. That is as much of a true statement for any sinner in here who has yet to call upon the name of Christ as it is for the believer who has followed Christ their whole life and you stumble again. He says when we confess, the Lord forgives. However bad you think your sin will be to other people, let me tell you now, it is much more wicked, it is much more heinous, and it is much more monstrous in the eyes of God. But let me tell you, He is able. He is able to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and forgive to the uttermost. And only He can do it, friend. If you have not yet come to know this God who forgives, His name is Jesus Christ. And He stands ready to be your advocate no matter what sin or wrongs or guilt that you bring. There is a cross upon which He died for you so that you may be made right with God. That you might know His peace. And then three days later, He rose from the grave conquering Satan, sin, and death. And now He sits at the right hand of God interceding for His elect. Empowering His children by His Spirit. And I hope for someone in here today, you have come into this place parched. You are thirsty. And you want to know this peace. And I offer to you the fountain of living waters. You can come and drink. It is free. Come, drink, and be satisfied. I just want to say a couple more things that I think are helpful from verse 5 and 7 real quick. First, David does not hold back in his confession. When David confesses, he doesn't sugarcoat it to God. In verse 5 he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. It wasn't her sin or his sin or their sin. He's not blame shifting. He's not making any type of excuse. David owns up to the reality of his sin and he acknowledges it before God. Not just confiding in another person, David confesses to God. He goes on to say, I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't minimize it. I didn't beat around the bush. I didn't reduce the charge. I didn't fluff on the details. He is honest and real with what sin he had done, and he confesses boldly to God. Second thing you'll notice is that David actually verbalizes his confession in prayer. I don't know if you do this. I am so guilty of doing this. I let my theology get in the way of my practice. I know that God knows that I know that He knows. Right? He knows that I'm struggling with that sin. He knows that I can't hide it from Him. He knows that I'm playing with it in my mind. And we want to know forgiveness. We want to know the peace but we never actually bring the problem to the Lord in prayer. We never verbalize it. David is silent, and that is what is crushing him. But look at verse 5. He says, I said, quote, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. David finally gets around to verbalizing the sin issue to God and speaking to Him as one would do to a person. Man, we sometimes forget that, that God is a person. We can communicate to him. We can speak with him like we do a friend. And in the process of verbalizing the sin, it has the effect of drawing out the problem and being real with it and receiving forgiveness. The third thing is the forgiveness that David received is immediate. It's immediate. David confessed, God forgave. It's the pattern we see in the scriptures everywhere. And yet we can be so fearful that we won't be accepted by God if we confess. Or that we're going to have to do uh, some kind of steps of penance in order before God gives us the blessing. Look, forgiveness is a gift. You, you don't do anything to earn the gift that God gives. God, what He does is asks you to recognize your problem, your needs, and He'll do the rest. You don't work for forgiveness 
It is freely given when you are least deserving of it. That's grace. And so the forgiveness was immediate in its application and its effect. Because of four, David, having been forgiven, is restored to the benefits of fellowship with God. Where sin inflicts distance and a sense of separation from God, because we're not being honest, in verse 7, he confesses, he breaks into praise. He is and he feels delivered and in the presence of God. You are my hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me. All of those descriptions are pointing to the restoration, the reconciliation that David is now experiencing because of confession. Peace and comfort has been restored. So we have these two observations. Unconfessed sin affects our temperament. Observation two, confessed sin leads to restoration and healing. So what is God calling us to do? We move on to our last point in our outline, application. These will come fairly quick. Application point number one, this may seem redundant at this point, but it is confess. Urgently. Urgently confess. David adds a warning in the midst of his praise in verse 6. He says this. You can look at it for yourself. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you might be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. I think the hard reality of what David is saying here is that there will come a time when the Lord may not be found. Pleading and praying will make no difference once God has delivered the sentence on Judgment Day. We do not know the day or the hour of His return, and we do not know the day or the hour where He will call us to stand before Him. The time for mercy is now. The time to pray is today. We know, for example, when Esau, who sold his birthright, he later desired a blessing. He wanted the blessing. But Scripture tells us he was rejected. For he had no ground for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Hebrews twelve seventeen. The warning and the application for us today is to confess and to confess urgently, do not delay, do not wait. If you do not know this Christ, let today be the day of your salvation. Do not linger. Repent and believe in the gospel and receive Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, the application is still the same. Do not delay. Let the truths of this text and the promise of 1 John 1.9 give you hope to do, it is hard, but give you the hope to do what you must to be right with God. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is what Psalm 32 and the whole of Scripture teaches. When we confess truly and wholly to God, He will forgive. Confess your sin to Him today. Application 2. Don't be a horse. Don't be a horse. Confess frequently. Look at verse 9. Do not be a horse, or be not a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Uh, most of us are familiar, if we've been a Christian for any length of time, the process of being torn down and built up again by God, and we kind of go back in through these seasons. God is good. He is faithful, and we praise Him for it. But I think in verse 8 and onward, we have God speaking prophetically through David, and God says this, I will instruct you, I will teach you, and I will counsel you. And then, verse 9, don't be a horse. What is God saying there? Well, I think it's this. Don't wait for the hand of the Lord to have to crush you down Run first to the hand of the Lord to lift you up. I don't know how many of you are horseback riders or your experience around horses. This is a place where Google did help me. Um, horses are controlled with a bit, something that goes into their mouth, and a bridle which kind of goes over their face. And what that does is it allows the horse to be trained. You can kind of control the direction of its going because you're steering its head. And so, the rider and trainer can then control where the horse is going. And so I think what God is saying is, is pretty clear. The illustration is kind of clear. 
stop resisting and stop straying away from his love and goodness. I am so guilty of this. I will so often exhaust all of my resources to try to solve my sin problem and I'll try to look at it from every angle. I'm looking for a loophole in the scriptures. You know, I'm turning, I'm looking for something. And then finally when I'm defeated, I'm distressed, depressed. I go, okay God, I need you now. As Christians, we must be okay with weakness and being humble and understanding enough to go to God with every and all of our issues and sins. We are to be more desperate for Christ today than the day we first believed. We need help. I definitely need help. We all need to be desperate and we need to stay on the narrow path that God is leading us on. Let us not be like the horse or mule who continue to be reined in the hard way. Enjoy the peace, the comfort, and deliverance of God. Confess urgently and confess frequently. Third, be glad and rejoice. Verse 11, the last verse. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Beloved, this peace belongs to you. Don't overthink God's forgiveness. Rejoice, be glad, praise Him and shout for joy. Be happy. Christians ought to be the happiest people around and people should know it. Now I'm not saying that there are circumstances or situations that can cause real sorrow, that the Lord even sends us and circumstances that would hinder joy. I'm just speaking generally. Christians have the most to be joyful about. Because forgiveness is freely given in Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him give us all things? As we partake in the Lord's Supper today, let us come joyfully, knowing Christ's body and blood were sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. Praise Him at the end of this worship service in the song of response. Sing the song gladly. Belt it out of tune. Sing, praise the best way you know how to God and rejoice in His great love for you. Let us receive the gift of forgiveness and the healing with thankful hearts that seek to praise and to make much of our God and King. And lastly, I will just say this one last time. For those who do not know this peace and deliverance, I plead with you to come to Jesus. Verse 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Trust in Jesus. Let us come to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, I thank you for your word and for this maskal of David in Psalm 32. I ask, Lord, that you would convict and apply this word in our hearts so that we would know and experience your grace. Grant us the ability to come and to confess and to enjoy the freedom and peace made possible only by the blood of your resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.